0: today in the attorney career advice podcast with harrison barnes
1: no one wants to hire someone if they feel like it's going to get them in trouble later on and then the interview may go longer and that's actually a good sign um being committed to the law firm and and not a troublemaker next question how long should a good interview last Okay. Interviews are typically structured to last a certain length of time. And most of them are a half hour. Sometimes they're longer. A couple of things to remember about interviews. So most, uh, because attorneys are paid by the hour and have to bill hours and accumulate hours, most of them are interested in having, do not want to spend a lot of time on interviews. Contrary to what you may think, or a lot of times, uh, that most attorneys do, may enjoy doing interviews, but they do not often enjoy the interruption, and they may have other things they want to get to. Time interviewing you is not billable hour time, and it may it's detracting from them seeing their families and all sorts of things. It's not to say that it's wrong to in do an interview, but taking more time in an interview than people think we should can often upset people a little bit. One thing I will say about a good interview is if it's a good interview... Many times the interviewer will be having a great time talking to you and will enjoy talking to you and the interview may go longer and that's actually a good sign. So if an interview goes longer or the person wants to spend additional time with you, then that's a good sign. It could be a longer interview, but I typically would recommend not trying to keep interviews going longer than they should because most of the time attorneys are just, it's, they don't want to spend a lot of time at interviews. So just think about your position. It's another question. It's okay to ask about benefits. I think I answered this earlier, but asking about benefits is probably not a good idea. During the interview, I would just focus on the position. In most cases, you can find a lot of information about the compensation online, or you'll find it after getting the job offer or sometimes before the job offer. They may ask you what you're making. I would be very careful with that. There's a lot of ways to answer that question. People will ask about how much you want to make when you're interviewing with a firm. Sometimes you can, if, they, if you're making a certain amount and you want to make the same amount, you can tell them that. If you don't want to make the same amount and you don't really care, you can just say, I want to get paid what everyone else is getting paid or I want to feel like I'm being compensated fairly based on what the firm is paying or what the employer is paying. And that's really often the best way to handle that. So law firms all the time will use your current compensation as a way to disqualify you from from making offers or for interviewing you. So law firms several times a day will ask me, what is the person making? Or what do they expect to make? And, and so we have to be very... Obviously, our job is to get you a job. So we have to be very careful how we answer that question. But we also have to be honest. So law firms, especially smaller law firms, do not want to waste their time if they don't pay very well. Interviewing people or, see, or watching your reactions when they tell you that their compensation is half of what a major firm is. They, they either they need to believe that you'll take the job. So this is just stuff to be very careful about in jobs. And obviously, you have to look out for your best interest. And there's nothing wrong with wanting to make as much money as you possibly can. So I don't think there's any, if that's what you're looking for. But at the same time, it's not the kind of thing I recommend focusing on right away. Should I take notes during an interview? Yes, you can take notes if you like. I I don't know that it makes a lot of sense to take notes. I think many times people do take notes during an interview. It can detract from you connecting with the interviewer, it's often, there's nothing that the interviewer is really going to say that you're not going to remember that's that important. If they ask you to call someone or do something or you need to take notes, then you can note that down. So it is a good idea to always have your resume and says another thing's with you when you're going to an interview. But taking notes is a little odd sometimes. It also makes people uncomfortable when the employer's taking notes. I don't think you need to take notes during an interview, but I think you should be ready to write things down if you need to during an interview. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. If I really want to shine in during an interview, what are some steps to, to do this very well? Okay, I'll just be as direct with this as I can. Obviously, if there's an interview that is very important to you, then one of the most important things to do is to research the firm and understand what's going on in the firm, what it would be like working there beforehand and being excited about it. But the next thing that I would recommend, I'll tell you a quick story. When I was growing up, I used to swim like competitively. And there was a guy that was my next door neighbor that always used to beat me in every match. And it was strange because uh, during practices, I was much better than him. And then one day I went over to his house, I don't know, before... Because he was right next door before we were getting ready to go to swim meet. And he was, uh, looked like he was sleeping. And I was like, What are you doing? And I woke him up. And he said, Oh, I'm practicing the visualization exercise. and visualizing winning the meet. And he always won these meets. And I'm like, Wow. And you do that for me? He said, Yeah. And he became a big time college swimmer at the University of Michigan. And so I think sometimes visualizing and spending some time thinking about how things are going to go well, what you're going to do, and psyching yourself up for an interview is very important. And I think it works. I think that if you concentrate on you know, what you can, what can go right, what you can do, and visualize everything before the interview and just rehearse it in your mind, that would be something that I would recommend. A lot of people do that. Athletes do that. A lot of professionals do that. I remember once I was with getting ready to travel somewhere with this person, this famous motivational speaker, and and the person was talking to themselves and jumping up and down, and and we were getting on a plane going to I don't know where. It was. Australia or something. And, and this is, and the person was just rehearsing in his mind over and over again and to, to have it to be very successful at it. And this is something that a lot of very successful people do. I don't know about talking to yourself, but just going and visualizing and thinking about how you're going to do well and stuff, I think can be very important if you want to do well. Is it a good idea to interview even if I don't want the position just to get more experience? Yes. So I think any interview you get, it's always a good idea to go on the interview. Now, if you really don't want the position, I don't know why that would be. It could be that the compensation is much lower than you'd ever expect. or And if that's the reason, or the, you, you never would work there, or you never would work in that city. But every interview is an opportunity to network. And so networking is something that is very important. So it's an opportunity to network. It's an opportunity to learn about different firms, about different people, to practice, to get exposed to questions you normally wouldn't get exposed to, all sorts of things. So I think going to interviews... Very smart now, and you don't always know uh, if you're not going to take the position because you never know what's going to happen, and and so you you may find yourself taking going on an interview and thinking you don't aren't going to want to work there, and yet then realizing when you're interviewing what a great opportunity is or what how many great things are possibly what a, why it would be a good place for you to work. So I think even if you're not sure if you want the position, I think going on uh, interviews can be a very smart thing. How do you re- respond to the question of what is your salary expectation? Okay, so this particular question, another good question. I think I've answered this in the past. What I believe with candidates is that, especially for young attorneys, um, your first three to five years of practice uh, are really not about your income. I know you think they are, but they're really not about your income. They're about your your experience and what you're being exposed to and the work and the type of attorney that work is going to make you become. Honestly, people do not really know what they're doing after one, two years, even three years. After five years, you know enough that you can be competent, but it's really not about income. I know it seems like it is because for many people, it's a very... You can make a lot of money and, and you think you have student loans to pay, but you're talking about a career that could go 40 or 50 years and only a small percentage of it is starting off in a firm. So if a firm's asking you about your income and the salary expectation, that means that they probably are not a high paid firm. And so that's the answer you give. You say, I realize as a young attorney that it's more important for me to get experience and worry about my income. I certainly would like to make the same amount of other people in my class here and I have the expectation to increase my income. But my most con- biggest concern is the quality of experience that I get at this point. And I'm certainly willing to trade income for that because I feel like the more I learn now, the better off I'll be in the long run. And that's important. Sometimes people that go to major law firms don't get exposed to a lot of things. I, and they may just do nothing but discovery the first three or four years when the people at pure firms are going to court and doing trials. And so it just, it really depends on you. But really, your first three to five years are not about income. I know you think they are, and I'm probably not going to convince anybody of otherwise. I'm pretty sure I'm not going to. But but you should not be worrying about your income very much your first three to five years of practice because it's just it's about the experience so my that's what how I would respond if they ask you what you want to make you, again you shouldn't you probably should say what I want to be paid what other people here are being paid or an amount that's fair for the type of practice or something along those lines and. Being able to see what they're really asking you there, they're also, they're saying, can you be managed? Are you going to accept the money we're giving you, which you might not? Are you going to commit? And and we're kind of asking, those are some of the questions that they're asking when they ask that question. A lot of people ask about salaries, so I think that's got that. Can you discuss the benefits of working in a boutique firm as well as your ability to move to a four firm after an experience? Okay. So there's an article, there's a couple articles I've written on BCG, the benefits of working in a boutique firm, and then the benefits of working in a large firm. But if you work at a boutique firm, there's definitely a lot of benefits of that. One of the main things is training. So boutique firms typically will, with a few attorneys that are good. So if you'll often get with close training, so you'll typically get better training in a boutique firm, meaning you'll work directly with someone on all aspects of whatever you're doing. Meaning... Instead of just working on a discrete aspect of a case or a matter, you'll work on lots of different aspects of the matter, which is very helpful, meaning you'll be exposed to if you're a litigator, instead of working on discovery and you may do depositions or you may do some, you'll just get more experience doing different things. So that's one benefit. The other benefit of working in a boutique firm is often it's a good place to, to you get more client contact. So that can be very helpful. You can often become... Boutiques are called boutiques traditionally because they have a specialty. There's boutiques that do IP. There's boutiques that do litigation. There's boutiques that do ERISA and tax. And so you'll get often very good exposure, healthcare to your practice area in a lot of depth. And you can then take that expertise to a larger or better firm later. Boutiques also will... I think the training can be very good. The Even sometimes the compensation is lower. but but you're going to get more exposure to to whatever it is you're working on. And yes, you can definitely move from a boutique to a three or four firm after working in a boutique. What happens to most attorneys is they start out at... A lot of people will start out at large law firms, and then they'll get sick of working in a large law firm, and they'll start leaving. And, And large law firms always want to hire people that are excited to move up, meaning people that really want to work there, That have a lot of enthusiasm. And that enthusiasm essentially means a lot of hours that they're going to bill and trying to get ahead. So law firms always hire people, big law firms from boutiques in the future. If you start out a boutique, say in Silicon Valley, doing corporate or litigation, and later on, you want to move to a much bigger firm that has a national name, you can... Or corporate or whatever your practice area is. An interesting fact is most patent attorneys start out in boutiques. The reason they start out in boutiques is they typically do not meet the grade cutoffs for for working in major firms when they're coming out of school. But then when they get the training in a boutique and work on a bunch of different things, when they're moving as a lateral, the firms do not, no longer care about their grades and, and they can move to a, a, a bigger firm. And that's what most of them do because most patent attorneys, for example, major in science, so they don't go to the best law schools, so they don't have the best grades because oftentimes they're working while they're in school. They often don't get the best grades while they're in school. So they in law school. So then they go to boutiques and but then move from boutiques to larger firms. Later, I think by the way, going to a boutique is often a very good experience for young attorneys because you will get exposed to a lot of different things early on, and it can often put you very far ahead of other attorneys. Most boutique firms are also started by people from large law firms that broke off because they wanted to feel independent or have their own firm or take clients, who knows. But, but often you'll get a lot of the same type of training. You'll also be exposed to an entrepreneurial environment earlier in your career, meaning someone trying to run a business and paid staff and bringing clients and all that that you might not normally get. So you get to go see the firm try to bring in clients. You'll get to see and make mistakes. You'll get to see lots of things you wouldn't see. And then you can always move later on. So I do feel it's, it can be a very good idea to go to a boutique even earlier in your career. And if you that's the only job you get, you should feel good about it. Or if you don't get a job in a big firm, because you can almost always, especially if it's a well-respected boutique, move to a big firm later. I've seen people come out of fourth-tier law schools and get jobs with someone, one attorney or two or three attorney firm in a very discreet practice area like healthcare or something. And Wound, wound up at uh, some of the largest law firms in the world based on that training. You can definitely define coming out of a boutique. Okay, so here's the question. This is a good question. I went in house for two years during COVID because I had no other option. I'm currently interviewing for law firms and don't know how to explain without giving a bad impression the reason why I switched from law firm in house and now back to a law firm. Okay, if you're interviewing with law firms, that's great. So that means that there's really nothing wrong with your background. That law firms are interested in. In hiring you, so explaining going in house can be difficult. So again, back to these reasons, law firms are often wondering will you commit to the job long term. So they feel like if you went to if you went in house, that you may not be someone that's going to commit to a job long term. And there's nothing wrong with going in house from the way you're talking about things, but. What I would su- suggest saying is not that you had no other options, but that my firm slowed down or didn't have any work and this offer came along and I took it, but I really miss working in a law firm. These are the things I miss about a law firm and it would be the, the sophistication of work, the new matters, the working for clients, the challenge of bringing building a book, all the different types of advantages that law firms have over in-house jobs. There's an article that I wrote called Why Going in-House is the Dumbest Mistake an Attorney Can Make and something like that. I'm not sure that's the title, but something along those lines. And and that article could be helpful for you just to understand some of the drawbacks of going in-house. But if you want to be in a law firm, I would just say it was a mistake. I want to go back to a law firm. I want to be in a law firm. This is what I like. If you're in a... It depends on the geographic area you're in. So if you're in a geographic area without a lot of law firms and you took a job in-house. and I don't know what the reasons are, but typically stressing why you want to be in a law firm as opposed to in-house. There's another question here about going in-house. Let me see. There's some funny questions coming up after this one too. I love it. Let me see. This next question, does working in-house give you something positive that law firms might value in order to hire you? It it depends on the in-house job you take. There's a bunch of reasons that in house can be negative for people, but does it give you something positive that law firms might value in her to heart? It depends on your practice area. It also depends on the type of in-house job you had, and a bunch of other related things. It also depends on whether or not those contacts that you got in house could be brought over as clients to the law firm. A bunch of other things, but going in house is not necessarily all negative. But the problem with going in house is that it's just. Most in-house counsel do not do work that's as sophisticated as their outside law firms do. Most in-house, they typically become experts in not doing work and experts in giving work to other people. So being successful as an in-house, and, and then they're typically not specialists, but they typically become more generalist. And So the way to really emphasize the benefit of your in-house experience is to try to convince firms that, that you really got a lot of specialist experience. And your in-house job that's relevant to your practice area that you worked harder in-house or than you did in the law firm that you miss a law firm that that you might have client contacts that you could bring over from the in-house job to the law firm that that working in-house convinced you that you never want to work in-house again that you'd only want to work in a law firm all those sorts of things so, so you can talk about the commitment it gave you to one to anything that really makes it look like your that the, the in-house job is something that they that, that convince you that a law firm is better or they gave you skills would help you. So that's how I would recommend with that.
0: Do you know the secrets to getting your dream legal job? We do. And one of the best things you can do is apply to jobs that fly under the radar. Applying to openings with very little competition means you stand a much higher chance of getting hired. But how do you find openings like that? For starters, you're not gonna find them on major job boards. Because these jobs are usually only advertised on companies' websites and in small regional publications. That is why we created Law Crossing, the most comprehensive database of legal jobs in the world. We have a team of people constantly working to find every single legal job out there. Unlike other job boards, which only list jobs that companies pay to post, we include every legal job we can find in order to maximize your chances of finding a job. So, what are you waiting for? Head over to www.lawcrossing.com to find your dream legal job today.
1: Okay, this next question. Is it okay to flirt with someone in an interview if you like the person? Not? So let me just, this is the funny question I'd say. I've seen this happen before, so it certainly happens. and And maybe you have to be very careful about what is flirting, what is flirting and what is not flirting. But certainly smiling and that sort of thing is probably... Okay, but you have to be, you do want to be professional and at the same time mildly uh, approachable and likable. But you don't, you definitely don't, I I wouldn't recommend flirting interview. No one wants to hire someone if they feel like it's going to get them in trouble later on, regardless of who you're interviewing with. Interviewer, uh, if they think you're flirting is probably not going to, it's going to probably not go over well. So I would definitely, or could, who knows, but regardless, it's just not the right. Way to think about things, so I would try to avoid that. You don't definitely do not want to go into interviews with the idea of meeting romantic partners. This is it's a job you have to be very careful. And frankly, I can't think of any way to get into more trouble than to getting into anything related to sorry personal relationships and so forth like that during any type of interview because it can definitely now if you don't want to work there, that's a whole separate question, and you have to use your judgment, but. But I don't think you any sense of the imagination want to flirt during an interview, which is kind of a funny question. But it, I've seen it happen before, so it's not inappropriate. But I think it's going to make people uh, very uncomfortable. Is it okay to avoid a question related to sexuality during an interview? Sure. So if someone asks you questions about your sexuality, I don't think there's any reason you have to answer that. And I would think that there obviously is something wrong with the interviewer, and you may not want to work someplace. If people are asking those kind of questions, first of all, it's another business. Uh, second of all, it's just—it's not. These kind of questions are just not appropriate. If flirting in interviews, and you're there to get a job. You're not there to get a romantic partner. You can certainly be friendly with people and smile and make eye contact, and that's not flirting. But flirting is—I guess there's different levels of it. But yeah, you don't want to ask questions about sex, answer questions about sexuality in your interviews. And there are all sorts of people that do this kind of stuff. I'm not saying that these questions are out of line. I mean, I'm saying these questions are on, but I'm not saying that people don't ask them. Most of the time, people that ask these kind of questions end up getting in trouble later in their careers. And, and I just can't tell you how many... Every firm gets involved in lawsuits and all sorts of things. And if this is happening at a firm you're interviewing with, it's probably not a good thing because it's going to, the firm's going to get in trouble later and, and you don't want any part of it a large law firm. Is probably How can you show that you can be managed in an interview? So the way you can show you can be managed in an interview is really to show the employer that you're here to do what they need done. You're good at following instructions. You're, you're a team player, all those sorts of things. So what happens in a lot of, especially now, is you may be watching. One example would be, what is Elon Musk? What is he doing at Tesla? Or not Tesla. I mean, uh, just a business. Uh, oh, Twitter. What is he doing at Twitter now? You start the, co- you start there, and your first day, you fire your your CEO and your general counsel and a bunch of people, and then the next day, you fire half the staff, and then a few days later, you tell everyone that they have to go into the office and they have to work harder than they've ever worked. What is he doing? He's basically getting rid of all the fluff and making sure that the people that are there are committed and can follow directions and can be managed. Meaning up until that point, his opinion probably was that people weren't willing to be managed and were just managing themselves and doing what they want and making a lot of money. And this is a billionaire or the richest man in the world doing this. So there's probably some method to this madness. I'm sure people question him and he's doing what other people are probably afraid to do. But this is an example of trying to manage a large group of people by sending a message. So how do you send a message that you can be managed? You say things that are related to... Uh, or people ask you... Um, you wouldn't ask how often you need to be in the office. But if people ask you, do I have... Do you have a problem working in the office? You say, absolutely not. I'll work. I'll do whatever. If this is what you mean. Do you have a problem? Anything that shows that you, can, you do what is asked of you and you're willing to follow directions and you're willing to respect authority... And all those sorts of things will show that you can be managed. And and what's interesting to understand about being managed is people, there are people that are against it. And that's fine. You don't have to, every type of job, you don't have to be managed. There are jobs that allow a lot of independence. But for the most part, if you're working for someone else, whether you're the president of the United States or you're the whoever, you're being managed by other people to some extent. I think most presidents are... Managed by a lot of other people to some extent. So are most executives, and so are most partners in law firms. But being managed means basically helping the company or the law firm do what they need, following instructions, not getting in the way of things getting done, um, being committed to the law firm, and and not a troublemaker. And all organizations are constantly going through a process where they're flushing people out that are not willing to be managed or not following instructions and bringing people in that will do that. And that's one reason why they like hiring people from smaller firms like boutiques and bringing them into larger firms, because what happens is a lot of times people become stale in large firms, and then they bring in hungrier people and that helps the whole system. But being able to be managed is very important. So you can say things like, I never like to turn down an assignment. I'd like to, I'd like to be in the office early because I can get a lot of stuff done then. And then I can be more responsive to, assignments during the day. There's all sorts of ways to show it. But once people believe that you're able to be managed, you're much more likely to be hired by anyone. And I'm sure when you look around in every law firm, there's always people, lots of them that can't be managed. And so those people typically leave or they're asked to leave or they're unhappy. And and you just have to be managed. and one thing I would say, if you're unhappy being managed, and there's nothing wrong with being unhappy being managed, people that are unhappy being managed start their own companies and do all sorts of things. But if you're unhappy being managed, you should often look at the organization you're in. So, if you're at a law firm that's been around for a hundred plus years, they obviously have something figured out, and they probably know how to manage things in a fairly decent, not perfect way, but a fairly decent way. And so, you should sometimes revert to that. And the law firm model, for the most part does work for law firms. So you need to um, stay in mind. Okay. So here's another... When I say to avoid personal questions, what is the choosing not to answer questions at the interview? Yeah. So you don't have to answer every question you're asked. And again, like the skill of not answering questions is the same thing that a lawyer would do in court. So if a lawyer or with a client... So if you choose not to answer a question, that's fine. But the, you're going to be evaluated on how well you don't answer the question. So if you turn it around and make the person that asked the question feel badly, uh, that's probably not a good idea. If you directly say, I'm not going to answer this question, that's going to make the person feel badly and defensive. If you, so the way not to answer the question would be to talk many times without giving them a response and then just go from there. But in most cases, if somebody asks you a question that's very personal in nature, and then you don't answer it and they ask it to you again, that's not good. And and if the law firm doesn't make you an offer because of that, I don't know what to tell you. But uh, most of the time, I don't think the law firm HR people would appreciate hearing something like that. So the the person that's doing this is actually putting themselves in, in, in in a lot worse situation than you are. Because I can imagine in this environment, especially that someone that does something like this could be in fairly serious trouble for asking certain types of questions. And I guess it's just not acceptable. Okay. What is a good weakness to say in law firm interviews? The good weaknesses are always things about in interviewing and different things about your strengths. So the weaknesses are always, I work too hard. I, I'm i a perfectionist. I, I commit to things. I uh, always try to make my bosses happy with my work. Anything like that, that I stress too much about job after work, and that it's hard for me to sleep. Just anything that relates to you being very good at your job and is are always good weaknesses. Good weaknesses are not things like I'm lazy or like that, or I'm I don't pay attention not attention to details, or I, but anything that relates to your strengths and realization that you have strengths is always important. There's a lot of questions. I really appreciate all these questions today. This is a uh, freaking amazing. A lot of questions. Okay. Let me see here. Okay. What is the best color to wear to law from interviews? So most people have... And I don't really know how to answer that question. But what I do know is that you definitely do not want to wear nothing too bright. And most people have colors that are good for them. I don't know how it works, but it has to do with your skin tone and, and, uh, and you can wear colors that work for your skin tone. And I don't, there's a way to choose your colors and skin tone or hair color, I don't know what it is, Uh, and and so you can do that. Or typically, things that are conservative, which would be like a gray or blue suit and that sort of thing. So those are how I think about that. But typically, you don't want to wear anything that's going to stick out and and be too noticeable or too unusual, which would be very bright colors and things. What are the best negotiation strategies for law firm job offers? The best negotiation strategy, typically, and depending The type of offer that you receive. So there's a bunch of different factors related to job offer and negotiation strategies, and you have to think to yourself about what you want to negotiate. So sometimes people want to negotiate how many days a week they have to be in the office. Other times people want to negotiate their pay. Sometimes people even are able to negotiate how long it'll be until they're considered for partner, all sorts of types of things. It really depends on the firm that you're interviewing with, that you're negotiating with. Most, the largest law firms often will have very, at least at the associate level, a lot of stuff is almost written in stone. And so if you're not doing, if you're hired, they expect you to follow along with that. If it's a smaller firm, or they typically have, a, typically you're typically going to have a lot more negotiating room. And then, of course, partners can have an incredible amount of negotiation room, even with the largest firms. If you're trying to negotiate a job offer, often having another offer that you are that is better in some terms or telling them, if you have another offer, I'm considering something else. And this is what I'd like to get. Or this is what I'm currently making. Is it possible to match that? I really like the firm are often the best strategies. Negotiating from where you're at now, or where you could be two of the smartest things. Or if that, And that's for money. And then other aspects are, can be useful too. So you just have to get a sense of what's negotiable. I will say that even with the largest law firms, a lot of stuff is negotiable. There's things you can negotiate like bar stipends, uh, even as a future moving from out of state, you can negotiate... Bonuses. If you're leaving uh, a firm and you may have gotten a bonus, but if you didn't leave, um, you can negotiate that sometimes. You can negotiate time off to study for the bar if you have to move states and take the bar. You can negotiate many things. So I would typically what I would recommend doing would be writing down all the points that you think are important. You can negotiate a moving allowance. You can negotiate paid time off to move. Just different things sometimes. It depends on what you're thinking. Now, that's not to say that all firms will do these things, typically you have um, what are, I would say, very established firms, which would be your large institution with the largest firms with most history, which who knows, you could ram law your, old, your biggest and oldest firms. And those firms typically will have very strict and defined things. And then you have less established or smaller to less established, and they may not have established. So typically, you're going to get the least negotiation here or at least at the associate level, least to negotiation to the most. So what happens is just from a business standpoint, most is that law firms are businesses. And what happens is as a business matures, businesses become much more set in their ways. And they have all these procedures basically to accommodate everything that's coming at them. And so the most established firms typically will not have as much negotiation, the less established will. If you're trying to work at a smaller firm, you may actually have a lot more negotiation leverage than you realize. But even the very established firms will a lot of times negotiate things. What I would recommend though, in terms of negotiation, is if you do too much negotiation, it can leave a very bad taste in people's mouth and and upset them before you even start. So you need to pick your battles wisely and be careful, but because you do want to look like you're someone that can be managed. I've seen firms, and I hate to say this, it hasn't happened very often, but when people try to negotiate too much, they're just like, listen, I can see where this is going to go in the future and we just don't want anything to do with you. And now has that happened? I don't think it's happened in a couple of years, but I did see that happen with a smaller firm that was run by one individual not too long ago, a couple of years ago, so it can happen.
0: Do you want to grow your legal career? Submit your resume to www.bcgsearch.com to get started today.
1: Okay, what can in-house counsel do to keep their skills sharpened? The problem with going in-house is that most in-house counsels are going to be, again, generalists and will refer a lot of work outside. It's in their best interest to refer work out to other attorneys because many times they can't do the work themselves or they, they don't want to do it themselves or they can get their employer to pay for it. And so they become kind of experts in that. And that's just how it works. It's always worked that way as far as I'm aware. It doesn't work that way everywhere. Some firms do their own patents, milling their litigation. But in order to keep your skills sharpened, what I would recommend is basically doing as much of the work as you possibly can yourself. I was talking to a attorney at a big firm in New York not too long ago. I think it was Latham. And they would hired... They told me someone from in-house and it was their client. And they hired him because he was just so freaking... All over it, like doing everything himself and a perfectionist. And and they said they never hired someone like that out of an in house job. And this is in the New York office. So if you are very gung ho in house, you're doing a lot of the work yourself and you're doing a very good job and you're impressing the attorneys that are working for you with the quality of your work, they will often be more than happy to hire you or speak very highly of you and even recommend you to other firms. So that's how I would think about doing that. Should I, this is a good question, should I contact the recruiter? in a law firm job interview and ask them why I fail? That's a good question. So I think that there are some actually very nice recruiting coordinators in law firms, some very nice people, and they would be sometimes are happy to discuss this sort of thing. But the problem with any time someone does that is if you make an, one person didn't like you, and then you talk to them and you, they basically don't tell you that person's name, which they probably wouldn't, but they would say, I think it's, they imply something, then then you may contact that person. and it, So law firms are, you know, the recruiting coordinators inside of law firms are often very nervous to do that. And they won't tell you why you failed. What I would just take away from all this is that typically, if you don't get the job when you're interviewed, there's a lot of reasons. One of the reasons is just that someone better came along. The person could be better because they liked them more. It could be better because they look more committed. It could be better because they're experienced. You don't know. Someone better came along. That's the first reason. Other times, they may not hire you because they no longer have a need or the... Are they're concerned about the economy, things like that. So worrying about that or thinking about things that way is also another way to deal with it. But typically, the answer is that they just you're not the right person. It's not that you fail. There are firms, by the way, that may interview a lot of people. They may interview 10 people for one job. So it's not that you fail. It's just that there was someone else that they like better. And there's nothing for you to worry about. It is something that people get very upset about, especially if it's one of the only interviews they get or... The only interview of the type of firm they want to work yeah. at. So it's nothing to really worry too much about. But if you want, you, I, some firms may be willing to talk to you about that. But in, in general, no means no. And, and there's really no way to get around that. And it, it's unfortunate. And most of these places you can also apply to. Again, I've seen people interview and then get jobs at the same firm that they got rejected at later, but you certainly don't want to apply to that firm every six months. You want to change something about your background before you come back. Because most law firms do keep records of their previous applicants. Okay. If you interviewed for a position with a law firm but did not receive contact information, some of you accept some thank you letters, even though you already sent an email, thanking the interviewer whose email address was. Sent. Oh, I mean, I'm assuming you want to send two thank you letters. I don't think you need to send two thank you letters. But in this, thank you letters, even though you already sent an email. Yeah, I don't. Yes, you can send people, by the way. So with the thank you letters, how does that work? Typically, what happens is, and this is at all firms, They there's just a quick form that people fill out after they speak to you. And then and typically, they'll do it almost contemporaneously. So they'll talk to you and they fill out the form and submit it. So send in the thank you letter often isn't going to do you much good, especially with associates. Sometimes it could help with partners and especially ones that are in charge and they will make a decision based on that. But the thank you letters, again, many times aren't going to make much of a difference. But you can, yes, you can, you can certainly send a, if you, but I would not send an email address and an email and a letter. I guess you could. You can always call the firm and say, just talk to the front desk and say, I wanted to send a thank you No, could I do that? And I would just maybe talk to the receptionist. I don't know that you want to bother the recruiting coordinator about it. But yeah, that's one way to do it. Should I write a thank you email after receiving a job rejection email? No, I don't think if you're rejected from a job, I don't think you need to send a thank you letter. The, The firms receive so many applicants, it's very difficult for them to Remember people, and and if you apply to a firm. One of the things to think about. So at BCG, for example, like we have just like any employment company, we have a lot of resumes of people. And because someone isn't appropriate for us at one point in time, doesn't mean that they're not going to. Someone could apply for a job and then or apply to work with us, and three days later, and we could say we can't work with you right now, or we don't have any openings. And then three days later, there could be something perfect for them. So it just it depends on the firm. So firms aren't going to remember a thank you email. They're, they're there's so many applicants they receive that there's no reason to... And you don't need to respond to a rejection email. A rejection email is just what it is. And just keep in mind, if you were a law firm, you they receive... Most law firms, a lot of applicants. So they don't really have the time to, to remember you or anything. It's nothing just personal. Nothing is... It's just... Your background and whether or not it matches what they need, or even if sometimes you're rejected just because they've already started interviewing people and they don't have time to bring in more people. And there's all sorts of things. You just you can't question too much why you're getting rejected. Okay. When applying for a job, how will they assess courses that were only available on a pastel basis? What can be done to emphasize these courses and submit an application during the interview process? Okay, One of the things about pass-fail is it's actually pretty smart if you think you're not going to do well in a course and you've done well in other courses, taking a pass-fail course, if you have that option, I think is a very smart thing because it can certainly raise your grade point average. Law firms are not, contrary to what you may think, they're not studying your grades and stuff very carefully that when you apply, they're not. They may look at how, you, how well you did in your law school compared to other people in your law school. Some law firms have cutoffs for different law firms, law schools, but most of them are not studying your grades very carefully. But just as most law schools are not studying your grades, they're looking at what your grade point average is. That's it. They're not saying, oh, but this grade was in music versus unfortunately, this just it's, I know a lot of people in the admissions community and it's unfortunate, but that's how it works is they basically, it's your grade point average. And then same thing with your, for law firms, law firms are concerned about if you look really good on paper because your grades, that's great, but they're not studying your grades. So I don't think you need to talk about all this stuff is important to you because you're into it and the pass fail on that point, but it's not the law firms aren't really that concerned about whether or not a class is pass fail or not. And okay, what are the chances of graduates from, I'm assuming you mean law schools lower tier law firms, getting over tier law schools, getting, hired by prestigious legal firms, what qualities employers look for in applicants. So if you didn't go to a great law school, then you have a couple of different options. One of them is to start at a smaller firm and work your way up. And and then the other is to do very well, regardless of where you went to law school. If it's an ABA accredited law school, people from all ABA accredited law schools are working in the largest law firms. If you do very well there, you can get a job there early in your career. If you didn't, You Typically, it's going to be a question of your practice area and the location that you're in. If you want to work in the biggest law firms, typically it's a little bit easier in smaller markets, but then larger markets, but people from... And it depends on your practice area. But if you didn't go to the best law school, it's definitely not going to prevent you from getting a job at a major law firm. It may right away when you get out of school, but people can always move later. Typically, the if you this is just a piece of advice I, I'm going to give it. It's a funny piece of advice, but it's something I've noticed. People that didn't go to the best law schools that want to work in the biggest firms often go to practice areas that other attorneys do not want to go into that, that are not as desirable. I don't know what those would be, but it could be, and I'm not going to even say what those are because I don't want to say bad things about practice areas, but going into a transactional practice area is often a very good idea. Transactional practice areas are things like corporate bankruptcy or corporate real estate, things like that. It's not as important often where you went to law school, trademark in a lot of transactional practice areas than it may be in litigation. Don't ask me why. But large law firms typically do care a lot about your law school and your performance and clerkships and things for litigation, but less so about transactional. And the other benefit about transactions, you're competing with fewer people. So if you go, if you want to be a corporate attorney or you want to be one of these things and you go to work at a smaller firm and you get experience, years later, if you do get good experience and the economy is right, you could move into a big firm. So that's one of the things I would recommend. Okay, here's someone who says, I'm not going to use your name and your profile. This is the first question someone asked today. So I'm gonna in a weird situation. I'm in a 3L year and IP litigation at Latham. Oh, great. Nice job. But have a history of patent prosecution at UPSTO and three years in a law firm, patent engineer before law school. I just passed the patent bar and wanted to develop a portfolio of work case. Not living in litigation. But I don't expect this to be the case if I want to crack on how to firm since I would only have about six months until I would have to leave as barren's getting a litigation. Okay. So what happens with this is and this, this is a good question. So what happens with patent prosecutors is patent prosecution, this is for people that don't know what it is. Patent prosecution is writing patents and then defending them or in front of the patent office or trying to overturn other people's patents that may be issued against your patent with a patent office. Typically what happens is when an attorney comes out of school. They will often become a patent prosecutor first. And sometimes they'll have been a patent prosecutor while they were in school. And then other times, an attorney will be a, a patent, will go into patent litigation that is a patent, will go into patent litigation first. People that go into patent litigation typically these days, it didn't used to be the case, but they'll have backgrounds and they'll often have a patent bar because it just looks better. For the clients and enables them to understand stuff. So what I would say, if you're a 3L, you really should not be using a legal recruiter at this point. You can certainly use a legal recruiter when you get more experience. And then if you, and you're going into patent litigation, so you can certainly do that without being a patent prosecutor. One of the things that happens because patent prosecution is so technical, it's very difficult for patent prosecutors to, to bill a lot of hours and because it just takes a lot of concentration and it's also the type of work that people typically don't want to do forever. And there's also a lot more money in doing patent litigation than there is patent prosecution. The reason the patent litigation, the cases just can go on forever and you, while you're billing thousand dollars an hour, or whatever it is, to the client, as long as the patent litigation case is going on. In patent prosecution, what's happening these days is a lot of the patents are being done in China or in India or these by, by kind of patent mills where it's much less expensive. And so the people that are doing them, the cost of patent prosecution is going down. A lot of firms are doing them for fixed prices and the patent litigation is continually going. It's not as active as it was several years ago, but it's still very active. So patent litigation is actually probably a better practice area to be into than prosecution and especially if you can get a job out of law school doing patent litigation with a patent background that's very extremely impressive and especially having the patent bar in addition. So that gives you a lot of will give you a lot of employment stability and you can almost always go back to patent prosecution later. If you do want to do not like litigation and want to go into patent prosecution you can later but it's probably important. I don't think Latham is not going to give you a lot of exposure to prosecution but you'll certainly learn about it. I would recommend and probably sticking with the litigation as long as you can to see if it's something that you're interested in, in the long run. Okay, thanks for all the questions. That was a lot of questions and I appreciate them. I hope everyone has a good holiday and, and then we'll be back again next week. And again, I appreciate all the questions. These webinars will go up also to be a recording of them and they'll go on the VCG site and this will be on the site hopefully in the next week or so. So thanks again, everyone for being on the call.
0: That's all the time we have for this edition of the show. If you're an attorney looking for a change, head on to bcgsearch.com.